each time we have a dialogue, there's the opportunity for something new to emerge, right? An opportunity, if we humble ourselves, for our prejudices and our narratives to be disrupted a little bit. Welcome to the Spirit is Lit podcast, a spirit-centered podcast. Join us each week for a conversation on faith, current events, and everything in between. Hey folks, how's it going? And welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Jacob Russia, and this week we have a great guest. His name is Muki Manalili, and we had the privilege of, I had the privilege of studying with him at uh, when I was at Boston College. Um, and this conversation, we're talking a lot about um, the breaking down the idea of what prejudice is um, and kind of how it has to do with neuroscience as well as uh, theology and faith and some really cool stuff. So I am excited for this conversation. Enjoy. Muki, uh, welcome to the Spirit is Lit podcast. It's so good to see you. So, uh, so good to hear from you um, on Zoom. Um, welcome. So, uh, you know, for before we get you dive too deep into it, um, can you just tell everyone kind of like, who is Muki? Um, can you give me a little bit of a story about who you are and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, uh, thanks, Jacob. Good, good to see your face and uh, hello to everyone behind this virtual screen. Uh, my name is Michael Muki Cruz Manalili. Please uh, just just call me Muki. Um, currently, right now, I am a practicing psychotherapist in Boston. Uh, additionally, I do uh, research in terms of philosophical psychology and also in terms of a little bit of social neuroscience. Uh, and I'm also in, in charge of professional and continuing ed uh, at Boston College uh, School of Education. I promise I do sleep sometimes and all of the, all of the other fun things. Um, but yes, a little bit about myself. Uh, I was born actually in the Philippines on Easter. Always kind of loved that, that part of the journey. Um, and I grew up in uh, a rehabilitation center, actually, where my mom was a nurse and my pops was a guard there. They met, did the whole, you know, like discernment, vocation thing, got married and had me. So I grew up from a very early age uh, in which, quote unquote, you know, our, our siblings in society that usually get shuffed off. Uh, they taught me how to play chess and, and basketball. I also grew up in a school uh, that were taught by pink habited nuns. So very early on, ideas of, you know, quote unquote, social work and theology uh, were never too divorced in my mind. All that to say that, yep, we moved to the United States, moved around in a couple different neighborhoods in the LA area, uh, studied civil engineering. Uh, Jesuits ruined me in undergrad, took a hard pivot away from engineering. Uh, did two years of service teaching at a high school where I got my MA from Notre Dame. Uh, and then uh, after grappling with some existential life questions, uh, wound up in Boston College where I actually uh, met our wonderful host today in the School of Theology and Ministry at BC. I did a dual degree in clinical social work and theological studies. And I hope to pursue a PhD in due time because, you know, the trick to student loans is if you stay in school, you never have to pay them back. 
just kidding. But the, the telos, the end goal is to teach, research, and counsel at a university setting uh, to grapple with those existential questions, but questions of meaning, spirituality, justice, ethics, all of those things grounded in the intersection of our fields. So it's a little bit about me, I like long walks on the beach. And I, I guess, you know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Looking dude, forward to our conversation today. Dude, I had no idea that you were born on Easter. How does it feel like to, you know, be born uh, doing your whole bit, you being doing your whole being birth business when Jesus is like being resurrected, kind of, you know. Yo, uh, I'm thinking, I, you know, depending on what we think about how the afterlife works, I was thinking, you know, like God was like, all right, I'm taking a son in, so I gotta kick kick a soul into the world. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> I I kind of joke that you know, there's always kind of the yeah the the echoes of of that in my story from the get go. So. Yeah, I take it with kind of a, a little bit of chuckle at, at the humor of it all for sure. That's cool. So, um, Mookie, uh, you yeah. uh, you mentioned you do a lot of work in the area of uh, prejudice and inter- intersectionality. Um, but before you, we we go any further sure. into that, could you kind of just define what those words mean and in, uh, in terms of your research? Yeah, I mean, right. These are pretty loaded topics, and I think. One of the things that um, has kind of like stoked my curiosity in this is I want to be able to kind of uh, utilize the depth of our different traditions, right? Whether that is our understanding of Catholic social teaching, quote unquote, through our faith, but also people in social psychology like Gordon Allport, right, who wrote the book, uh, The Nature of Prejudice, uh, and even things like the implicit association test. Uh, which was founded by a couple of the researchers over in Harvard. But, you know, sometimes it gets kind of um, misunderstood sometimes on on how it's used. So all that to say that I kind of take a an intersectional, uh, an interdisciplinary approach when I'm approaching these topics. So um, all that to say that at least uh, from the frame of Gordon Allport, Um, prejudice are things that are either associated with judgments about a grouping of people and usually typically uh, kind of in which you take a particular person, you have a mapping uh, of certain characteristics and you map that on to a person. It is, quote unquote, a judgment beforehand, pre-judge, prejudice. Right, and typically this might manifest in negative ways as in stereotypes and whether they are implicitly or explicitly quote unquote believed, they may begin to affect actions uh, and those can turn into things like discrimination. Right, so that's a little bit of, uh, at least in in that way of defining uh, prejudice. Now, before we jump into intersectionality, Prejudice uh, and the ability to categorize is not, quote unquote, innately bad all the time, right? So for example, uh, the example that uh, researcher Mazarin Banaji really likes to use is a deck of cards, right? So like, Jacob, if I asked you to, you know, imagine a deck of cards, and if you imagine hearts and diamonds, what color would go to your mind? Um, red. 
Yeah, there you go. You, you got it. <laughs> or yeah, you passed the pop quiz. Congratulations. Or right, if you imagine clubs in spades, what color would go to your mind? Uh, black. Exactly. Right. So in our mind, we categorize this based on kind of our lived experiences of these things. Right. We go around the world, quote unquote, categorizing things um, because it is kind of easy to make sense of our experience in that way, right? So whether we're putting things in terms of categories of colors or even things, right? Like if you go to Trader Joe's, like the really cramped Trader Joe's that we have here in Boston, and you take an orange sphere and you analyze it all the time, it'd be really taxing for you to one hour later, like, oh yes, this, this is an orange, right? But you know, interacting with that, you can map on your understanding of orange into that particular thing. So, you know, this is something that we do. However, it does become harmful when these things become resistant to being updated, right? So for example, if that, you know, sphere-like object, it has pores, it's orange, you're like, oh yeah, this is an orange, but you cut into it and it's like, sour, it has like kind of a red fruit inside. You're like, oh, this isn't an orange, this is a grapefruit, right? Um, so that is our ability to update uh, kind of our preconceived notion. But sometimes the problem with prejudices is that we can, uh, rather than update what we previously believed, hold on to the fixed uh, kind of prejudice and just think that this is an outlier um, right, so we can think of all of both the positive and the negative stereotypes that we might associate with different categories of people in the way that we put them into categories. And the reason I kind of share that aspect of association and prejudice is that's where intersectionality uh, kind of comes in. Um, we can chat a little bit more, but kind of the, the quick and skinny of it is intersectionality is kind of like how these different categories might intersect and they're not just quote unquote distinct, right? So for example, if there are prejudices to a particular category, whether it is skin tone or race and prejudices in terms of sex and gender, you know, these aren't just things that are distinct, right? Like a person with the intersections of those might face quote unquote unique types of experiences in the world. So that's a little bit about prejudice and intersectionality, and I can dive a little bit more into the thinkers uh, of each. So yeah, what does that have you thinking as we kind of- reminds uh, me of, um, as I was looking at kind of one of the presentations you've given so far, it reminds me of um, the, you you mentioned in your presentation, this uh, music video by this rapper named yeah. Joyner Lucas. Um, which, um, uh, from what I understand is like, which, from what you're saying is like, there's, you know, healthy prejudices that we were able to distinguish between things, but then there's also unhealthy. So I'm wondering, um, to me, that seems like that's, a uh, Joyner Lucas is kind of, um, exemplifying or portraying, um, you know, some unhealthy prejudices. I'm wondering if you, if you could break that down from the video. Yeah. Yo, I mean, um, Shout outs to, uh, to Joyner for being able to dive into some, some pretty deep narratives. Um, yeah, so for, for those uh, who are unfamiliar, feel free to take a look at the, 
the video. It's a uh, Joiner Lucas. I'm not a racist, and it came out in 2017, I believe. Definitely, like a, a word of caution. The 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 video has very provocative language, and the actors do a really good job of portraying uh, the kind of different sides and quote unquote the different narratives that we have here in the United States, right? And just to kind of explicitly kind of talk about the character, even though it might make us a little uncomfortable, it is the different quote unquote tribes and the different stories that we have in the United States, or maybe at times as we've seen in the past that this United States, right? Um, and uh, the, the two characters in it kind of portray the stereotypes that they have mapped on to the other person standing before them, right? So again, kind of talking about, right, like all of the stories that they say about the other person and that happens in both verse one and two. And then it kind of ends with them, you know, wishing that they can come to understanding at the end of the verse. And I think you're, you're hinting at it, Jacob, right? Like, yes, we might have a human inclination to put people in certain categories. Uh, and that's how we might navigate the world when we interact with objects. But, you know, uh, at least what our faith invites us to is the particularity of each person in front of us, right? Mm -hmm. To be open to be humbled and surprised that the stereotypes, the judgments that I have, the stories that I've heard about of the person in front of me, um, the person in front of me might surprise me, uh, right? I think that's, that's a healthy stance to make sure that the stereotypes don't become fixed and unhealthy, kind of like you're saying, like even in our conversation today, the fact that you were surprised that, you know, I was born on Easter, right? Each time we have a dialogue, there's the opportunity for something new to emerge, right? An opportunity, if we humble ourselves, for our prejudices and our narratives to be disrupted a little bit. So uh, I'm wondering, I want to get your opinion, to, if you like agree or disagree with this. Of course. Um, for me, looking at the video, um, it seems like super, like this um, almost ideal s situation where like the problem is resolved <laughs> in like what, like six minutes, which like, I'm wondering I, that 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 might be like a similar structure and how problems you know like differences kind of get resolved. But I'm wondering with your experience, um, your knowledge of neuroscience, um, how maybe uh, that time span looks like, or maybe how how uh, how that maybe how accurate or inaccurate inaccurate it is. Yeah. Um... You know, I, 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 wish, I wish that things can be resolved in quote unquote six minutes, right? When we bear our hearts to each other, but um, because of the ways that we are embodied and because of the ways that experiences quote unquote code into us, um, you know, it might, it might uh, take a little longer than that. So I'll, I'll answer your question, um, perhaps in kind of three different uh, fields answering answering to it, one through therapy, uh, one through neuroscience, as you were asking, and the other through the implicit association test, which is kind of the literature that I was referencing. So in terms of being able to, to dialogue in the therapeutic space, uh, this is something that me and other clinicians uh, 
have conversations about, you know, what happens when the person's worldview is very different from yours, you know, how do you hold space as a person who is performing therapy when, you know, this is for the other person in front of you? And, you know, even that healthy tension of being invited to consider a worldview that is not yours, right? And to understand how a person might come to certain narratives that help organize the chaos of their, their world into a particular explanation and then into a particular belief and then into a particular in-group that they might choose, right? This might be political in nature, this might be religious in nature, racial, X, Y, and Z. But all that to say that when we perform therapy, you know, we, we are asked to, to check ourselves and, you know, see that the, the meaning making is being made by quote unquote, the patient in front of us. Of course, it's a, it's a lot harder to <laughs> do than actually just say, especially when sometimes, you know, uh, their worldview might be dangerous or, or might promote hurt um, either to, you know, their partner, somebody immediate in their life, or even like groups of people. And that is always, you know, a conversation to be had. But at the end of the day, at least the point for me in therapy is to invite the person to see what values are, quote unquote, driving them. And at times, questions about value might at least bypass some of the deep divisions that we have, knowing that a person might value uh, or might be, quote unquote, afraid of certain things, you know, those typical human condition conversations might allow us to get underneath. So that that's one way. Um, in terms of neuroscience, yeah, for sure. <laughs> like some quick uh, some quick neuroscience facts for, for those who are scientifically minded. Uh, human brain development, you know, I got my little squishy brain here, super useful for for, for the kiddos who have stress, it's called the stress brain. You can squeeze it when you're stressed, it's great. But anyway, uh, all that to say that the human brain actually um, takes a couple of years to quote unquote, fully maturate. Um, for biological males, it's around mid twenties, you know, for biological females, it is uh, earlier in the earlier twenties. And then for some biological males, we just never fully develop and we're a boy forever. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, the brain goes through other things too, called synaptic pruning, right? Um, in which in the very early stages of brain development, um, there are kind of like in the way that uh, there is wet cement, right? Kind of like the different quote unquote pathways uh, in the brain uh, might be more plastic in the earlier stages of development. Right? That's why it's super easy for kids to pick up language uh, and things like that. So that very uh, kind of plastic stage is in early kind of childhood and infancy. And the other stage is actually adolescent, right? So shout outs to uh, people who mentor teenagers, you know, in their kind of angsty way, they might not say it, but they're really relying on some of your executive functioning and some of your mentorship. Like we can think when we were back in high school, that one mentor that kind of helped quote unquote, show us the way, right? Because of all the hormones flying around in the body 
<laughs> because of the way that the brain is rewiring in that stage, some of the executive functioning is not as there and we're more prone to some quick ways to, to relieve our stress. Um, however, I do want to point out that uh, two things. <clears throat> One, there is always a sense of plasticity throughout our life. Although there's not a lot of neurogenesis, which is the creation of new brain cells, the way that the brain reconfigures in different pathways in our brain to be tread can be had throughout our life. So that's one. Two, neuroscience is not just a head up, but also the rest of our embodiment, our nervous system. When we have those gut responses, you know, that's the 10th cranial vagus nerve giving us a gut response when we're stressed. That could be anything from you, you know, seeing that pretty person across the room and you having like kind of a gut reaction to that, or even like when you're stressed and anxious, when your shoulders tense up and stressed and anxious, you know, whether it is a physical stressor, um, as in like a lion chasing you in the savannah, or like uh, thinking of the incredible amount of student loans you might have. Um, both of those stresses trigger that stress response. And now to finally loop in what we were talking about, which is prejudices, right? You can see that even our imagined perceptions of people will trigger that same quote unquote gut, that same stress response, right? So especially when we have very developmental years in early childhood, adolescent, and later on, the narratives that get solidified, the ways that you relate to the world, right, might be habits that are difficult, not impossible, but more difficult to overcome in later parts of your life. So I'm actually very much in favor of having people interact in those developmental years with other, with, with things that are very, very different from them. So uh, I'll leave it there. I know we got some other questions that we got to get to, but yeah. I wonder what that has you thinking about. I'm wondering, um, you mentioned, um, I mean, we talked a little about um, kind of the unhealthy effects of prejudice. What does um, anti-prejudice look like in a healthy way? Yeah, 100%, man. Um, anti-prejudice in, in a healthy way. I think, uh, and I think this is kind of a, a good way to loop in um, some of the, the research and the literature that, that I mentioned, right? So I know that um, Dr. Ibram Kendi's book, uh, you know, How to Be Anti-Racist kind of really caught fire this year, um, right? In terms of intersectionality, you know, there are um, leaders like Collins, Patricia Hill Collins, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw uh, from the political field, uh, but also people like Bell Hooks and many other people uh, who have written on this topic. Definitely invite you to, to explore their works. Um, and right, I think one of the things that I am beginning to find is that uh, even in the implicit association test, which I guess is kind of the third thing that I mentioned as I was answering the previous thing, um, our implicit attitudes might be difficult to dislodge, right? So in some of the analysis that I've done, you know, um, some of the predictors for, you know, increased bias towards, you know, quote unquote, a white preference as opposed to a black preference, 
doesn't become dislodged by education. You know, so sadly, being woke through all of my degrees will not, <laughs> you know, rid me of this nature. Um, but, right, those implicit things doesn't necessarily have to become explicit behaviors. You know, there is a gap between, and Viktor Frankl talks about this in Logotherapy, which is a meaning-oriented existential therapy. There's a gap between our stimulus gut response and the behavior that we output, right? If we ask ourselves, what do I truly value, you know, in a given moment, um, that might help redirect some of the more automatic behaviors that an implicit uh, prejudice might, you know, go forth. So to be anti-racist in kind of that, that roundabout way is to actively inspect in ourselves when I am sitting in the public metro here in Boston, as I look around my neighbors around me, am I automatically jumping to conclusions based on what I am perceiving and the quickest stories that I am retrieving? Am I more prone to sit next to this person because I am attracted to their beauty? Or am I repulsed to this person because I am repulsed by X, Y, and Z, right? To be really honest with ourselves that it is not like, oh, I'm either racist or not, you know, I'm either prejudiced or not. It is how am I prejudiced and how do I begin to act against maybe some of the negative effects that either my upbringing or my worldview has allowed in me. And I think when we shift from the questions of who is prejudiced and who is racist to how we can address this in ourselves and keep each other accountable. It becomes less of a witch hunt and more of realizing that, you know, through our fallen nature, it is through community and through each other that we can, you know, kind of help override some of those things, right? So yeah, things like mindfulness, things like being kind of aware of those things and things like community are, are ways to begin to be anti-prejudice. So, um, to me, a lot of what we've been talking about, um, I think there's a lot of like uh, almost maybe implicit uh, theological understanding to all of it. But I'm yeah. wondering with with your theological experience, where um, how, how do you see theology and like faith being, you know, um, engulfed in this? How do you see them intertwined? Yeah, 100 um, percent. And I love this question because, you know, typically as, as I dive more into psychological research, uh, right theology and philosophy is quote-unquote welcomed into the room in, in varying degrees. So um, I will, yeah, there is one particular philosopher, and then I'll loop that into some of our understanding and, you know, some of our incarnational theology, actually. But there's a, a philosopher by the name of Emmanuel Levinas, and the idea that he's most known for um, is the idea of quote-unquote the other. Right. So Emmanuel Levinas kind of levels out philosophy, saying that we are so egocentric, like the questions of philosophy have started from the I. You know, what does it mean for me to, you know, have self-transcendence, you know, to what does it mean for me to X, Y and Z? Right. It starts from the axiom of the I. And Levinas says, of course, any system that you build around that as your starting point would be very selfish, right? Whether it's social contract theory that 
like makes it so that, you know, I have security through this or, you know, even some of the existential leanings. Um, but for him, it has to start from the other. Right? That's why for him, ethics is the first philosophy because it, you know, I'm living in my own RPG world where everybody else is, you know, just kind of like a non-player character um, until I actually encounter you, Jacob, or you behind the screen, which is really hard because I can't see your face. So, right, until I encounter that human other, I am jarred and reminded that I am not the only ego in this world, right? Uh, for him, it is the other that invites us into ethics, that invites us into philosophy, right? And you can kind of see the traces of, of kind of like a religiosity here, right? Because if it is not my I that I am going around in this world living, right? The other can also quote unquote be, you know, the Christ, right? In, in, in the way that the other breaks in through my mundane, right? It is my neighbor asking for, you know, a meal as I'm trying to busily rush to my work meeting and realizing that, yeah, you know, me being five minutes late is fine if it means interacting with this particular human life before me. So for me, uh, that is where, you know, prejudice and anti-prejudice and even intersectionality interacts. It is an invitation to see that my worldview is not the master. It is not, you know, one, it's not even complete, <laughs> you know, it's like a finite set, but two, like through community and through the realization that there are not my I, you know, not only my will be done, but I can even echo the values and the will of an ancient voice, you know, to do you love me, feed my sheep, you know, follow me. It is an orientation away from the prejudice that I am always right, you know. I, I do think that when you begin to inspect and see how you can undo your own biases, it's very humbling, right? And through that humility, uh, through that acceptance of our finitude, we realize that we could actually have relationships where we're open to be surprised, you know. We're open to have our narratives shifted. Um, we're actually able to engage in uh, community. So I think the theological then there is, right, the invitation from the very ancient voice from the get-go that we were not created to rule this world on our own, but there is another voice uh, to be listened to and dialogued with. Yeah, I love that. So um, got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is Yo. I'm, this I'm really enjoying this conversation <laughs> farther, but um, we're, we're coming to the end of the, of the time, but Good All news right. is we've still got our fire round questions. These are rapid questions. So I've got some. All right, got pop some off. Answer Let's them go. as quick as you can. Um, kind of, you know, whatever is off, off, comes up off the top of uh, wherever the spirit leads you. Um, hey, so let's go. First question is, uh, what person do you think lived out the values of Jesus best, dead or alive? Dang. Ah, ooh, uh, Victor Frankl. Nice, nice. Okay. Um, what is your favorite method of prayer right now? Ooh, um, Hesychasm, the Philokalia. It's like a Greek Orthodox uh, breath prayer. Check it out. Oh, that sounds cool. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So now if you were Pope for a day, what would you do? Oh, oh, if I was Pope for a day, 
Oh man. Oh, it's hard. <laughs> um, I'd listen and see what the sheep are asking for. Oh, that's good. Nice. And where the spirit guides for sure. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, final question. This is the most, uh, I got to tell you, the most controversial, the most theological, the most philosophical. Um, of course. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop pokey? Oh my gosh, dude. Unknown because the real truth will always uh, be very different from my prejudged understanding of what the truth could be. I'm oh, just kidding. I don't know. 77. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. It's either 77 or unknown. Um, thanks so much, go. Mookie, for taking the time and sharing your wisdom and your um, knowledge. Really appreciate it. Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. And I hope that each of y'all are able to be surprised this week by your neighbor. Until next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Peace.